WBNE. Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey. And I'm Valerie, and welcome to the podcast where we explore characters, themes, and symbolism in pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from Lake Geneva, Switzerland, in the middle of a rainstorm. And today we're discussing creative friendships and the dares that shaped pop culture, specifically with Mary Shelley and her friends, with J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I have an all-important question for you. Okay. This one comes from, I've kind of adapted it from a couple of our wizard patrons. Mm -hmm. Um, You made it a Frankenstein? (laughs) Yes. Uh, This one's from a variation of what Shira and and Krista asked. The question is, if you could have two creative people, living or dead, over for a dinner party, who would you pick and what would you discuss? I think it's a fantastic question, but I want to hear your answer first. This was really hard for me. Just picking two? Just two. Really hard. Can I have like one show up late? Like so I can have three? <laughs> you want a friend who's late to the party? Yeah, yeah. I need like three. Nope. Just two. No. <laughs> I just like to make it more difficult for you. I just don't know. Well, let's start with the obvious. Obviously, mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson is there. Knew it. Yep. Um, Because we'd be friends and because we'd be friends and so <laughs> so it was just a natural inclusion yeah, yeah. He, he needs to be there and i just want to talk about everything movies books his favorite foods um everything i don't have a specific topic but then my question is for the second one i just don't know because i could pick like you know my favorite writer like ray bradbury but i don't know if that would be as interesting as like i guess here's the thing i need someone that can make ryan johnson laugh because i don't know if i can but I want to hear his giggle. So so, so I'm going to go with Taika Waititi because I could talk about to Taika Waititi about movies and books and everything too, but also he's so funny that he would just make Ryan Johnson giggle and that's what I want out of life. <laughs> so so that's it. I, I, I came to my answer. Okay. I, wanted, I wanted Carrie Fisher to show up late just, so, mm. just for, for the record. I want Carrie Fisher to come. That would be a good trio. Yeah. Um, a set of four of you. Um, you stole one of mine. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh. I also want to hang out with Taika Waititi because <laughs> I love his sense of humor. And he just seems like a fantastic person. But it would just be me and Taika Waititi and Jane Austen. Okay. And we would talk about women in fiction. Mm-hmm. And then we would just talk about women's roles in general. And I think it's really interesting because uh, Taika has two daughters. And I really like the way that he... I don't know if you follow like his Instagram stories oh, and yes. stuff. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> I love the way that he portrays his girls as like such strong individuals. And so I feel like he would be a fun one to talk to. Plus I feel like he and Jane Austen would just be really funny together. Right. That's like a, it's like a they're both very sarcastic mm. in their tones, but from, you know, a century's difference of time. Yeah. I think it would be. Like, it's like two centuries. It would be fantastic. That's that's all I'm saying. I love that. That's a great answer. Thanks, Shira and Krista, for helping us with that question. Which, speaking of the Patreon, to submit all important questions, we ask questions in, on our on our Discord for Wizards of Elsewhere and Above. But also, we're going to have an announcement for our Patreon at the end of this episode. A fun change in addition. So stick around for that, because it's very exciting and affects every 
type of patron, every level. And we mean stick around because we've got a lot, of talk, a lot to talk about tonight. We do have a lot to talk about. I'm very excited about this episode. We've been playing this one for ages. This one's Eons. been in my head like even before, like pre-podcast, I've thought about this. Just the fact that there seems to be this through line or thread of certain creative friendships that that because they're such creative forces individually and then they come together that they change pop culture because that they're because they're friends and on top of that they all have to seem to have this dare or bet with one another that um like this this healthy rivalry that also fuels that uh that friendship and it's just so fascinating to me that all of these friendships have that element of of a dare or a bet that really changed pop culture agreed it's like captain planet with our powers combined or voltron also true yeah let's start with mary shelley and frankenstein let's do it first i feel like to understand mary shelley you need to know her background a little bit so i'm gonna give you a little brief rundown of let's hear it mary shelley i'm excited she's a very unique upbringing for her time like if it's you know early 18th century england and uh, her parents were revolutionaries by many standards her mom was um Mary Wollstonecraft, and she was like an early feminist, and she had very, very feminist writings. And then her dad was William Godwin, who was like a political philosopher and one of the forefathers of like anarchism. And uh, they kind of lived on the edge of like polite society. Like, for example, Mary was conceived, and then they decided to get married to make Mary legitimate or to make, you know, their future daughter legitimate even though neither of them really believed in the constructs of marriage, which is just so interesting for early 18th century England. Like, it feels totally out of place. But you can definitely see how that had great impact on how Mary viewed things. Um, After her mom passed away shortly after, like, just a few days after Mary's birth, um, Mary had a very, like, unusual education. Like, she was taught at home by her father and then reading her mom's writings as well. So she was very well-read and she was very political and she enjoyed writing. But you can see where she kind of got her own disregard for society's rules because her parents certainly didn't believe in those rules. So when along comes Percy Shelley, who was kind of a political devotee of um, of her father's, and Percy's 21 and Mary's only 16, which I guess isn't uncommon for that time either. It's so funny to look back at things. You're like, okay, f- with a historical lens, 16's not uncommon for like getting married and stuff. Right, but it is kind of weird. No. <laughs> it is, it's totally weird. Well, and it's just so interesting to think that she's making major life decisions at the age of 16. True. Not that a lot of teenagers don't, they still do, but um, anyway, so she's 16 and Mary's 21, or sorry, Mary's 16, Percy's 21, uh, and Percy is married, but like estranged from his wife. Oh, interesting. And so the two just run off together and they kind of fall into like a nomadic lifestyle that's often joined by other writers and poets and artists and they mostly live in, on the continent. They seem to be able to get away with more on the continent than in proper England. And so they kind of live a very free lifestyle, which is very interesting. It sounds like a like a bohemian artistic commune kind of thing. Right. <laughs> yes, especially since, 
you know, they weren't married because Percy's already married and they both have very open ideas about marriage and relationships and love. But in 1816, with Mary was only 19 and Percy was there and then Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, they were all staying at Lake Geneva in Switzerland, as you mentioned at the beginning of our post, Lake Geneva, which is great because that's where she places Frankenstein's yeah. the story or at least the beginning of the story. And nearby, the same Lake Geneva, they had the poet Lord Byron, who had with him his personal doctor, John William Polidori. Polidori? I'm not sure how you say his name. They just hang out? He just hangs out with his doctor? Yeah. He, like, brought along his own personal physician, (laughs) who also happens to write sometimes. Mm. Uh, I guess, you know, I think Lord Byron had gone there for his health. But it ends up being the most wet summer of all time. Like, they came to vacation here, but it rained and rained and rained. So the little group spent a lot of days inside reading German ghost stories. And so Lord Byron suggested that they should write, they should each write a ghost story of their own. So here's the dare. So there's the the dare. dare. Yeah. Yeah. And Mary is, like, so embarrassed each morning when she wakes up and they're like, have you thought of a story idea yet? And she's like, no. And, you know, (laughs) she (laughs) kind of mentions that she's... (laughs) She's like, oh, I keep having to tell him, no, I haven't thought of a story idea yet. Um, but she also talks about her, talks about the other, the men's stories. And she says, poor Polidari had some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady. Which is a little excerpt that she writes about him. And while Polidari's story wasn't ever successful or anything, um, he did eventually write the book The Vampire, but an I, a Y instead of a I. Um, which he credits the beginnings of his tale to that summer and that idea. And it was like the first uh, vampire story written in English and was an influence of uh, Stoker's Dracula. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so cool. So that little side story happened. And then Mary also talks about Shelley and Byron. And Mary says, uh, the illustrious poets... Isn't that funny? Can I start calling you the illustrious poet, Casey? Sure, yeah. I'll take that. (laughs) The illustrious poets, also annoyed by the platitudes of prose, speedily relinquished the uncongenial task. So they gave up. So they gave up, and their stories were never finished. Uh, Meanwhile, like I said, Mary was struggling to think of an idea, and I like the way she describes this. So at this point, everyone else has given up. The summer is like over. Like They're not all staying at the house still, right? Well, they were at two separate houses, but yeah, they would but get like together and visit and everything. Their get-togethers over, like no, she's they're still there. Okay, but everyone else has given up, but she has not. Well, it's a little hard to tell because, like, when she rewrites it, or like when she wrote about it in the past, it's like I don't know if she hadn't. I think she hadn't come up with the idea, but then shortly thereafter did. Mm-hmm. So maybe the other two were like, oh, I'm, or the other writers were like, oh yeah, I'm still working on that, but then it just never really happens. Yeah. Okay. Or whether you know. Because, I don't know, a process of giving up usually takes time, right? Right. Like it might, it's it might a, not have been a night and day yeah. thing. Okay. <laughs> so she talks about how she really wants to write this book, this story. Um, I'm going to quote here. that says, To rival those which had excited us to this task. One which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror. One to make the reader dread to look round, to curdle the blood, and quicken the beatings of the heart. If I did not accomplish these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. So she's 
kind of looking for this great hook that will make her story, like she said, a ghost story. And I love the way she describes it because it feels so much like when you read anything or watch anything creepy now, like the idea that you're scared to look around or it just makes your blood curdle. I love it. Those are universal feelings with ghost stories. So meanwhile, while Mary's trying to come up with a story, she spends many evenings listening to long conversations between Shelley and Byron, and they discuss everything. Um, And at one point, they were discussing the nature of the principle of life, or in other words, like what makes a being come alive. And they were talking about the experiments of Luigi Galvani, who was the creator of galvanism, which is like the use of electricity to give a charge to dead cells. So his experiments... Um, Galvani's experiments usually involved like dead frogs, and when you'd add an ele- when he'd add an electrical charge, the frog's legs would twitch as if in motion. So that idea and these conversations kind of led to this one sleepless night where Mary has a very vivid experience. Are you ready for this? I'm so excited. <laughs> she says. I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handiwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade, that this thing which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter, and he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. I love that. And I love that so much of that initial vision ends up in the story and not just the the context of um of victor frankenstein waking and finding the monster over him but even just the idea of um like thematically of of playing god um she mentions the creator in there Mm -hmm. um and and also victor sort of as soon as he realizes what he's done um as we mentioned in our frankenstein episode last time that he immediately feels horror at his at his creation and it's like it's all there already initially in that first sort of vision that she has i love that right she's given this immediate idea and she runs with it and she it, she mentions that she, her imagination scared her so badly she couldn't go back to sleep the rest of the night which is i've had many nights like that where i'm like dang it why did i have to think about that yeah. now i can't sleep <laughs> And she knew, she decided that if it terrified her, it would certainly terrify others. Maybe I just need to become a horror writing, writer, Casey. <laughs> because you're scared easily? Because I'm scared <laughs> easily, so I know what is scary. <laughs> so she writes down her waking dream, as she called it. And it started with just a few pages, but Percy encouraged her to expand upon her story and make it even more. And he helped with um, some of the editing, but nothing substantial. Because for a while there, there were 
ideas or rumors that he was the actual author or that right because she published it anonymously yeah everyone assumed it was his um and then even later people were like well he probably helped edit so much or helped half write it or but it was genuinely her story and uh, so yeah, so two years later, in 1818, Frankenstein or modern pr- or a modern Prometheus was published anonymously, and everyone suspected it was Percy's. But it was popular enough to demand a second and third edition during Mary's lifetime. And then there were lots of people who um, were offended by Doctor Frankenstein, like taking on the role of God. But even then, it still became incredibly popular. And I mean, it's still one of the most popular gothic novels of all times and it was the beginning of a new genre of literature science fiction all written by a 19 year old teenage girl she started science fiction right i love that how did more people not talk about that brian i think brian aldis who's a science fiction writer was one of the um at least one of the biggest people that said like hey frankenstein was the first science fiction novel because of um i mean there was fantastical things before that but because of its in, input of science with the fantastical um, and that the focus was on Victor and his the science of this creation of this thing. But yeah, this was the first science fiction novel. And uh, so, yeah, if you're a woman and there's gatekeeping guys out there that say you can't like, like science fiction, just remind them that science fiction started from a teenage girl. Exactly. <laughs> One more note, because a lot of people have doubted through the years of Mary Shelley's story of like how she came to the idea of. Frankenstein just you know so miraculously in the middle of the night and she very specifically talks about how the moonlight streams through her window during the like during um the kind of vision that she had and so Casey in 2011 a research team from Texas State University had two physicists and an English professor travel to Lake Geneva (laughs) and they stayed at the house that the Shelleys stayed at, because it's still there, that house is still there, and using astronomical data, they concluded that a bright gibbous moon would have shown in Mary's room between 2 and 3 a.m. on June 16th, at least in part proving her account and leaving no reason to doubt the rest. I love that so much. That they were like, well, let's see if we can figure this out. We know <laughs> let's see what the moon was doing that night. We know just about the days when she was there. It was like either the ni- 16th through the 19th, somewhere in there. And she said the moon was streaming in her room around this time. So they like <laughs> went there, hung out in her room, and proved her correct. But can we talk about how how few times that anyone would try to discredit an account of a male author? saying, oh, I had this vision and then put it down to paper. Oh, 100%. No one would care or do anything about it. People don't assume that the wife wrote the husband's book. Right. When often the women were at least the scribes. The scribes, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They could have very easily been like adding in notes or editing as they go. Uh, Most of your favorite author's books were actually typed by women. So Exactly. Mary Shelley, she had a very interesting life. But there is a, a direct line, I think, between that dare at the side of Lake Geneva to the mm-hmm. creation of science fiction. Like, that's a huge shaping of pop culture. And I love that so much. Absolutely. It seems like such a simple thing. I think we all do it with friends at some point or another. I mean, you've got like the kid like dares. Or even now as an adult, my friends and I will be like, okay, we're going to hold each other accountable for like this kind of goal. Like, a, yeah, yeah you know, an exercise goal or whatever it is, like there's this, or a no social media goal or whatever. So your your friends have great influences on you. And I like when it becomes a, yeah, a big thing that 
like you said, shapes pop culture. When is our creative friendship going to shape pop culture, Casey? We already have. I'm just waiting for it. You've forgotten already. <laughs> then it wasn't big enough if I could forget it. No, it just deals with time travel. So I'm so confused. <laughs> it's already happened and it hasn't happened yet. Okay, you ready to talk about another power friendship, another power couple, platonic, yes. a platonic power couple? Yes. Uh, I want to talk about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Yeah, at some point Tolkien. I want to talk about their the platonic part of their friendship. Okay. <laughs> you don't think it was platonic? Oh, no, saying? no, I think it was. Oh, okay. But I think it's just funny that it often gets retrospectively like cast in non-platonic light. Or like, Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I'm not doubting it, but I read the most interesting article, Casey. Okay. From The Atlantic. And it was just a few weeks ago. I think it was like October 20th. And uh, it's talking all about the um, the title of the article is What if friendship, not marriage, was at the center of life? And it starts out talking about like m- more modern day couples and how their relationships, like their best friends with people and how their best friendship is the most important relationship in their life. And so like romantic friendships kind of take side seats and it's just very interesting uh, but then it goes into the history of friendships can i pause you for one second because yes. this is bringing up some intense childhood memories mm-hmm. of i was reading this um childhood book about about basketball player charles barkley and in that book it talked about how he was best friends with michael jordan and my mom and i would fight about this idea that charles barkley could be best friends with michael jordan because my mom said no charles barkley and michael jordan are supposed to be best friends with their wives they can't be best friends with each other and i thought that was so crazy to my childhood (laughs) mind like no charles barkley of course he's best friends with michael jordan like why wouldn't he be why would he be best friends with his wife which is so funny so funny because like now years later i consider you my best friend you know but to my childhood mind that was like no no way Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan are best friends. Okay, but this well, illustrates maybe they were. Yeah. the point exactly. Because it goes into the whole history of friendship. And there's this idea um, in the you know 18th, 19th, and even like early 20th century where they, they call them like romantic friendships. Where there was like such a deep personal connection between two people. And it was never like frowned upon it was never like cast into like a homosexual light kind of like frodo and sam here exactly (laughs) it is yeah a hobbit thing but it's just so interesting because in our mind we automatically question we're like well they're probably also lovers Mm. you know like it's just a an immediate reaction you're like "Eh, they couldn't have possibly been that close of friends and you know nothing else come up but that's the uh it was in the early you know, 1900s, when they started to, I guess it wasn't early, it was like 1930s, um, there became more and more ideas like, um, or uh, psychologists and things, and the idea that, because it was always believed that, up to that point, that like, homosexual behavior was deviant, but then they started pushing that even, like, homosexual, like, thoughts, or like, being too close was like, deviant. So it's almost like, um, and I haven't read the article you have, but it, it it makes me think of like this rise of toxic masculinity that this idea that um, any expression of love toward a friend is going to be perceived as homosexual. So therefore, stay as far away as possible from that thing. Yes, that's exactly how it happens. Part of the problem was that women in the 19... 19- 
20s, 30s, 40s, they started being able to go to college and get their own jobs and not needing men uh, as their like economic support. And so they would have boss, they call them Boston marriages. It would be like two women who wanted to have careers and they'd live together. And there's debate on that. It's like, well, they were lesbians, but like in some other cases, they clearly weren't. Interesting. And so there's like, um, they wanted, what they really wanted was the independence and the freedom. And, you know, the lady they were living with didn't care. Like what they, you know, (laughs) you can go have a career. I want to have a career too. (laughs) Whereas that wouldn't have been supported if she had been married. You know, then your place is in the home with the children. Oh, interesting. And so a lot of that was this idea that before that time, men didn't care if two women had wonderful friendships together. In fact, women were encouraged to exist in a, a totally feminine sphere completely separate from the men's world um but when it started to shift and women started to come you know more into the men's world with like careers and and votes for women and all these things then all of a sudden they also didn't like the idea that women were having the freedom of like not getting married Mm -hmm. um and so it's that same thing they mention let me find but like you were talking about um when it comes to two men who wouldn't have, uh, like you were talking about like toxic masculinity, like the idea that you can't, you know, have like a close loving relationship with a fellow guy. So in the article, they have lots of examples um, where they are and they have, um, let's see, a quote from the author E. Anthony Rotundo. And he's talking about how, or he argues that In some ways, attitudes about love and sex back then left men freer to express their feelings than they would have been in the 20th century. Um, For example, like men's liberty to be physically demonstrative in in like photos of friendship. Um, So like they have a link to like photos of guy friends who, you know, are arms linked or holding hands or you put your hand on the other guy's knee or whatever it is. Like, no, we thought any of that was weird. Like we would today, you'd be like, like you can't show a love and affection to a friend because it might be deviant Right, is the idea that eventually came about about. Or even more so that if you're, if you're heterosexual, you can't do that because if you can only do that if you are gay. Yeah. Um, and so for example, they have, a quote from a, let's see, there's a journal from a young engineer named James Blake. And he's talking about how he had a, you know, a night with a friend and, and he's, he says that we retired early and in each other's arms fell asleep peacefully. <laughs> I love that. Like, like, cuddled to sleep. <laughs> it's adorable. And it's like no big deal. Um, and there's just this idea that often friendship, especially female friends, like, but even the male friends, you know, they were allowed to, you know, give hugs and kisses and and nobody thought anything of it. They had slumber parties and slept in the same bed. And there's just this immediate modern day, like looking back on their friendships where we're like, eh, that seems weird. Yeah. Which is just so funny. So I think because um, like like you talked about Sam and Frodo in Lord of the Rings, they get a lot of that. Like, yeah, there's lots of holding hands. Lots and, of holding yeah. hands and there's lots of, but just their relationship gets viewed through a very modern lens now mm-hmm. instead of the idea that they had a romantic friendship Yeah, and romantic in the sense of they care deeply about each other. Um, they have some examples in the article about women writing and saying, well, I'm not sure, you know, like, I'm not sure if I want to get married because then, you know, I've got this 
guy in my life and I really like you as my best friend. You know, like you're my pal. You're, and it'll kind of like replace you and I don't think I'm cool with that. Like That's almost word for word of the end of Return of the King. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly where Sam's like, well, I like Rosie, but you know, Mr. Frodo, you're like my number one. Like my our friendship yeah. is my number one <laughs> relationship. And it's like you mentioned earlier, like your your mom's reaction to your spouse is supposed to be your number one friend. And that wasn't a thing until like the 70s, 80s. Like it's been a very recent idea that your spouse is supposed to be your number one, your one and only, which in some ways I think comes from the romantic in all of us. Like we want our spouse to be like our ultimate companion forevermore. But in the article, they also mentioned that that puts so much pressure on this one relationship when every person is so very individual and they want, like, you need different outlets. You're going to have friends who you reach out to for different things or you're going to have siblings that support you in different ways than your spouse can. And, like, I have been thinking, it's funny because I I just came across this article, like, I just happened to find it, um not even like not even researching for this podcast but it just keeps coming back to me like i keep rethinking about this article i really recommend everybody read it it's very fascinating and it brings up a lot of interesting points anyways that was a super long uh not tangent because i wanted to bring it up but a super long uh roundabout way to get to J.R.R. tolkien and c.s lewis and their relationship because i think you could argue they had one of those romantic friendships Maybe I feel like they were they had quite a bit of a a rival like they didn't so like by the time um Lewis passed away, they hadn't really spoken for a while so Interesting. so although they did have a strong friendship, um it sort of waxed and waned, and I, I guess that's probably pretty normal for a lot of friendships, but um they were definitely friends, and we'll get into that, but they they grew apart a little bit later, and I think part of it is just because they they had a pretty different approach to how they went about things creatively. Um, and a lot of their friendship was so much built upon back and forth and, and argument and, and it was friendly and, um, and critical in a positive way. But I think that maybe that wore it down a little bit. I'm not really sure, but, um, maybe yeah. I'm just projecting, maybe it's more the Sam and Frodo relationship. Yeah, that I'm thinking of. I think theirs is definitely, I'm of the opinion example. that Sam and Frodo is what you want it to be. I think that Reader's like choice. homosexual readings of it are completely <laughs> valid, and I think there's plenty of evidence for it in there, um, or at least bisexual. But at the same time, yeah, I think that for the time, it wasn't so different. Um, that yeah, we're we're projecting a lot of our modern lens on it. So I, th- I think yes, choose your own adventure with Frodo and Sam. <laughs> um, but yeah, Lewis and Tolkien. So it's important to note, like a good place to start, and I'll come back to why this is important, Important, but so when Tolkien was 21 um, at King Edward's school, he hadn't met Lewis yet. Um, he and his friends had started the Tea Club Barovian Society, TCBS, um, but its members, they all eventually fought in World War I, and most of its members died. And so Tolkien was left like racked with this survivor's guilt, and I'll come back to why that, that TCBS club is important, but jump ahead to to May 11th, 1926. That's the day that Tolkien and Lewis met. So at that time, Tolkien was already a, a professor. Are you going to like mark it on our calendars so we can celebrate yeah, next year? exactly. May 11th. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Tolkien was a, already a professor of Anglo-Saxon. So his focus was on language. And Lewis's focus was on literature. And he had just been appointed um, to the Oxford English School. 
So they're going to be at the same school. And there was a meeting of professors and they were talking about the syllabus as professors of, of the English department do. And Lewis's first impression of Tolkien is that he is a, quote, a smooth, pale, fluent little chap. Um, in the meeting, Tolkien was discussing bringing language and literature more like closely together, align them a little bit more um, and, and as part of the school syllabus. And then after the meeting, Lewis approached Tolkien to get more of his feelings on this and asks him straight up, like, what's more important, language or literature? Which Lewis knew Tolkien would have been a professor of language. So, of course, Tolkien's going to say language, right? right? Like, it's a totally, like, <laughs> loaded question. question. Yeah. Um so yeah, of course Tolkien answers language, um, but then Tolkien even, probably because he knew it was a loaded question, he has the audacity to to speak a bit ill of literature, and uh, or at least sort of put language on a higher pedestal. And Lewis said after the meeting, he said, no harm in him, only needs a smack or two. <laughs> so they're already off to a slightly rough start of uh, sort of these, these polar opinions, opposites. Yeah. Um, but of course, opposites attract. And I think that's true in a lot of friendships too. Um, so like Lewis and Tolkien, for all their you know later similarities in having a great influence on, on legitimizing fantasy for readers of all ages, they were also really different um, in like, you know, even in their looks and in their personality, these, these surface level things, but also um, like I, I hinted at the, their approach to creative works. Um, so just starting with like the the superficial stuff. Lewis was a very bold person. He was loud and he often took charge. Um, Tolkien was a little more reserved, a little more introverted. Um, although he was, he was known as friendly, but he was just a little, a little more, um, someone described him as like spacey a little bit, kind of off in his own world. He sort of was dreaming about Middle Earth all the time. Um, <laughs> there's a Dr. Robert Havard who knew them both. And he said, quote, Tolkien's whole manner was elusive rather than direct whereas Lewis came straight out at you. These are superficialities, but there's a great difference in mental makeup. The word flighty crosses my mind in connection with Tolkien. He would hop from subject to subject in an elusive sort of way. You could see his mind was working more like a carpenter at a carpenter's bench. They were two very different people, and the surprising thing really is that they became uh, such close friends rather than that differences appeared and separated them. Um, in terms of like other surface level stuff like lewis was shorter and wider in stature um tolkien was very tall and slender so they were like this this just fun odd couple um even like lewis dressed more like the undergraduates at the school did whereas tolkien dressed a little more dapper so tween yeah tweed coats with the elbow patches well which is what I, I, I think even the undergraduates at that point <laughs> probably were wearing tweed <laughs> they weren't wearing like shorts and flip-flops or anything but We've, got, we've become so <laughs> relaxed as a society. <laughs> but then in terms of creativity, like the most sort of the, a big argument that they always had was about was about allegory. Like it's been spoken of ad nauseum, but Lewis, he utilized allegory much more um, in a more direct way than Tolkien did in terms of like Aslan is a one to one um, analog for for Jesus Christ. Whereas for Tolkien, that was. Two on the nose. Two on the nose. It wasn't trusting the reader enough. I think too much has probably been said that Tolkien hated allegory. And I don't think that that's a really good representation. I think, and of course, I don't I don't know Tolkien. I never met him. But just in terms of what like I've read, it seems to me... You met the main biographer who wrote about Tolkien. <laughs> I did meet Tolkien's biographer, yes. One <laughs> of them. Um, <laughs> but I did not ask him this question, no. But it seems to me that like 
it wasn't that Tolkien hated allegory. It was that he wanted the reader to find their own allegory. So like if you read Lord of the Rings and you think the ring is, um, is a metaphor for drug addiction or the nuclear bomb, then I think that's fine to Tolkien. His problem was when authors would say, no, this is the only way to interpret it. Um, so I think there's a, there's a more subtle distinction there than just Tolkien hated allegory, which wasn't really true. So do you think he trusted the readers so much? Do you think he would be cool with people, modern uh, readings of Fram, of, of Fram, of Sam and Frodo? <laughs> That's fair. That's our <laughs> couple name. It came Fram. out that way. <laughs> do you think he'd be okay with it? Choose your own adventure? Um, in the 50s? No, I doubt it. <laughs> no, if Because I think he hated that the hippies today. loved Lord of the Rings. Yes. And the hippies did love Lord of the Rings. I think he hated that, but... Um, but I think if he was, you know, a more modern person, yeah, I think that what I know of Tolkien, I think he would be okay with, yeah, readers' own interpretation of things. And he also never said that he didn't put his own stuff into it. You know, he was definitely influenced by Christianity and the war and all those things. It's just he didn't want to say, this is the only way to interpret it. Um, he wanted he wanted you to find your own way, find your own path. Um but at the same time, he did not like that, you know, what Lewis was doing as much with the, you know, Aslan is Jesus thing. He, he wanted things to be a little more subtle than that. Um, but yeah, that's just one example of how, like, creatively that they differed. They did have other similarities, though. Like, Lewis was known as a very, like, bold, dynamic speaker. But Tolkien was actually pretty sought after when he had lectures as well. So I think they're both People just enjoyed. wanted to ask Tolkien questions about Lord of the Rings. I don't know. I think a lot of that was pre pre that, before that. But... Maybe. So in the same year that, that Tolkien and Lewis met at that meeting, Tolkien had already started this informal reading club, um, sort of trying to recapture what he had with TCBS. Um, in this reading club, which was some of the other writers and professors, they were um, reading Icelandic literature, which is just so like specific. Like we're having an informal meeting and we're just reading Icelandic literature. That's it. <laughs> Nothing bring outside that of that. up at our next book club. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Lewis eventually joined this informal club and he really valued meeting with Tolkien um, and they spoke of everything. It wasn't, they didn't just really honestly just talk about Icelandic literature, like religion would come up and they would just make puns just for the fun of it. And so it was just a, a group of friends, a group of, of bros just hanging out. One interesting thing about their friendship. So they're becoming friends and Lewis would call Tolkien by Tolkien's nickname, which was Tollers. And a lot of people called Lewis uh, Jack. Um, Jack Lewis, but Tolkien didn't. He would just call him Lewis by his last name. But Lewis didn't know that Tolkien's first name was John until the 50s. So like 30 years after they've met is when he finally knows and learns that Tolkien's first name is John. <laughs> I don't know. How did he go that long without knowing? I don't know, but he did. <laughs> um, Lewis said of Tolkien, quote, he is the most unmanageable man, unmanageable man in conversation I've ever met. He will talk to you all right, but the subject of his remarks will be whatever happens to be interesting to him at the moment. Which is really funny because Tolkien would, or Lewis would do the same thing sometimes. Like it's been said that at their meetings, especially their later meetings with the Inklings, which I'll talk about in a second, but um, if, if Lewis didn't like the topic of conversation, he would just like pull out a book and just read to himself to, like, to, to annoy <laughs> everyone else until they switched the subject to something that Lewis wanted to talk about. That's just kind of the person Lewis was. Exactly. You're like, this isn't interesting to me. I'll be back when it's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so, so then they formed the Inklings, which is like the famous literary club 
of Lewis and Tolkien. And they had other writer friends um, that were part of that, but they were definitely the biggest names in that little group. They would talk about language and literature and theology, and they would often like a major part of it was they would share their creative work. So they would critique each other's stuff, um, their poems, their, their, you know, budding novels, everything. You got to have a writing group. Yeah. Yeah. People to help some, um, what's the word? Positive feedback. There's mm-hmm. another better, what's the phrase? <laughs> it's bugging me. Um, Something criticism. Constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. criticism. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> you got to have constructive criticism. <laughs> So in 1936, so here's the, here's the dare. We've come to the dare. So just like Mary Shelley and friends had got a dare from, from, uh, Lord from Lord Byron, there's a dare involved between Lewis and Tolkien. So 1936. They went to Lake Geneva. They did not. But then, this is really interesting. And this is probably the seed of this idea forever ago when I read this about Tolkien and Lewis in, in terms of seeds of idea for this podcast is what I mean, this episode. But um, Tolkien and Lewis were talking and Tolkien said he like really loved stories that surveyed the depths of space and time, and and um, and he and Lewis are like lamenting how rare, really transformative escapist fiction is, and you know books that really like lift the reader's experience and really evoke strong emotions. They felt like it was really rare, and Lewis was you know just conceded, well, I guess we'll have to write these ourselves because there's not enough of it out there for us. At that point, so 1936, The Hobbit was just about to be published, but Lord of the Rings was still on the horizon. It was still a ways away. And Lewis suggests that one of them should write a time travel story and the other a space travel story. And this idea immediately made Tolkien think of the dare at Lake Geneva with Lord Byron and and Mary Shelley. Um, So that was like in his mind because Tolkien's a smart dude and he remembered that. So he's like, he was game for it. So they just flipped a coin and Lewis was going to write the space story and Tolkien the time travel story. Um, Lewis wrote his, his space he started writing his space trilogy, you know, it become the space trilogy, the Paralandra series, which is, um, it's known, but it's not as well known as, as Narnia. And then Tolkien began writing a, a story called The Lost Road, which dealt with a, a father and son whose relationship repeats itself through time and had, it had connections to his mythology of Middle Earth. Um, the story itself was abandoned, but certain concepts remained in Tolkien's mythology. So like the long road itself became the straight road, which is sort of the pathway the elves take to Valinor at the, um, you know, the end of, end of middle earth and the end of return of the King. That's the road that, that Frodo and Bilbo take to get to Valinor across the ocean. Um, so that, that idea of the long road became the straight road. And then even some of the conventions he was thinking about with time travel ended up in Lewis's stories because there was so much back and forth creatively between them and, and critiquing each other's work that there's really a lot of overlap. What Tolkien was looking at in terms of time travel ended up in Lewis's Narnia in the way that time the time worked in Narnia, how like the kids would be forever in Narnia and then they would yes. come back and still be... And it was only an hour. Yeah, it was a very short amount of time. That was something that came from Tolkien, um, not from Lewis. Interesting. I didn't know um, that. Also, I would say that even though Lord of the Rings isn't a time travel story per se, that because of the way Tolkien treats it as alternate history, you know, his his conceit was that that Middle Earth is a is a mythology, um, an unwritten mythology or a, an excavated mythology of of Britain, and that was sort of his imagination for it. So in a way, it's not a time travel, but it is alternative history. So there's a little bit of an element of that. Right. Um, and then just to end on on the two of these, the just to sort of see more of that overlap between the two, like, for example, 
um, in Tolkien's Middle Earth, the world is created through music in the Silmarillion, which also Aslan created Narnia through song. Through song. Um, so that was something that I they shared. I haven't thought about that, yeah. too. The connection there. Something fun in the Paralandra series, the space trilogy that Lewis did write, the first two books, the main character's name is Elwyn Ransom, and he's like tall and slender, and he's a linguist, clearly fashioned after Tolkien. <laughs> and even the name Elwyn means elf friend. So it's definitely a, an analog for Tolkien. And then, of course, it's been said that Treebeard, with his booming voice and his distaste for modernity, is, is also a, a symbol of of C.S. Lewis in Lord of the Rings. I think it's a little bit more of a, it's both of them in a way, because Treebeard has a lot of uh, Tolkien sensibilities too, but definitely in terms of just his personality and booming voice, that was very, uh, very much a Lewis thing. So yeah, that's Lewis and Tolkien. I love that they've, they're these two, again, these two really prolific, great writers, but they would not have had the output that they did without each other sort of building off of each other and and some of that friendly rivalry. I know it makes me think that me and my friends and me and you, we need to step up our game, Casey. I'm not cool enough for that. <laughs> I feel like we do it in small ways as we challenge each other with the podcast. Like, there you go. Well, we should talk about this next. <laughs> our, yeah. This is our creative outlet. It is. Okay. You want to hear about George Lucas and Steven Spielberg? Always. I love the relationship. I do too. It's very Every time cute. I read a quote about something that they've done together or... Mm -hmm some way that they've teased each other like i love it yeah and there's actually a lot of similarities and differences with them and lewis and tolkien so george and should i call him george and steven no lucas and spielberg they're among this generation of directors known as the movie brats uh, we, we talked a lot about this um in our beach movies episode a little bit I, I, maybe not a lot but we talked about it a little bit so yeah there's these movie brats and most of them were we're friends. It's like this ragtag group of, of cinematic rebels going up against the big studio system. It included Lucas and Spielberg, but there was also uh, like Francis Ford Coppola, who, who made The Godfather um, and Apocalypse Now. Uh, you had Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma, all these like names that are pretty big now, but um, they were all friends. Within that friendship group, Spielberg and Lucas were definitely had the most longevity. Like they were, they are best friends still. Um, they met at a, a screening for um, Lucas's short film, student film, THX 1138. And Spielberg said, THX was not of this earth. THX created a world that did not exist before George designed it. Spielberg was like really blown away. He didn't, they didn't know each other. They didn't sort of have the same circle yet. Um, and, and Spielberg was just in awe. Spielberg at the time went to California State University in Long Beach. And I think he had just started he didn't get into USC because his grades weren't quite good enough. Um, Lucas was at USC film school. And uh, Spielberg also said, I realized there was an entire generation coming out of NYU, USC, and UCLA. THX 1138 made me jealous to the marrow of my bones. I was 18 years old and had directed 15 short films by that time. And this little movie was better than all of my movies combined. So it, there started from a place of, of jealousy a little bit and maybe a little bit of rivalry. Like George had at that point, he met Steven, but he'd already seen one of Spielberg's early um, student films, Amblin, which is where the, you know, the, the studio name oh, comes yeah. from. It comes from um, one of Spielberg's early, early student films, which is just, funny because... I can just picture it with the little, you the know, logo. E.T. Yeah, e logo. And the logo, yeah. Which the is little bicycle. funny as an aside because Lucas used THX as the name of the, That's the what sound I was say, company. the sound. Yeah. So they both I always did the think same it thing. as the sound. Mm. <laughs> yep. 
but George, he thought the movie Amblin was a little too sweet. <laughs> so it's like the first movie that Lucas sees as Spielberg, he didn't really care for it, but Spielberg was like in love with THX. But then it changed a little bit. So a few years later, Spielberg was screening his TV movie Duel at um, Francis Ford Coppola's house. And Lucas like loved. As one does. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just that sentence. No, like. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola is an interesting dude. Like he has like, like his house is a, it's not just a house. Like it's a special place to be invited to Francis Ford Coppola's house. Anyways, um, Lucas really loved what Spielberg had done with Duel. He said, since I'd met Steven, I was curious about the movie and thought I'd sneak upstairs and catch 10 or 15 minutes. Once I started watching, I couldn't tear myself away. I thought this guy is really sharp. I've got to get to know him better. So they both start from a place of there was a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of like creative curiosity and interest more so than, you know, them meeting in person and being like, I want to be this person's friend. Right. It's like it it all started from the film side of things, not the relational side of things. Right. A little bit of admiration. Yeah. Um, So so they're becoming friends. They would, um, you know, they got starting to get to know each other. And then when Spielberg was making Jaws um, a bit later, he invited Lucas and and some other filmmaker friends to the set. And George Lucas playfully stuck his head inside of the mechanical shark, um, Bruce. And then, of course, equally playfully, Spielberg started messing with the buttons. (laughs) And George Lucas got stuck in Bruce, the mechanical shark, for a little while. (laughs) It's fantastic. Because, of course, the, the shark had all kinds of mechanical problems on that set. It's famous for that. Right. Um, But I just love that. Yeah, George Lucas got stuck in the shark just playing around on set. Did they have to like grease him out with butter? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how they greased George out of there. <laughs> so a little bit later, Lucas had just wrapped filming of Star Wars in London. So um, some of the, the set work for Star Wars. And Lucas visited Spielberg in Alabama, where Spielberg was shooting Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And George Lucas was like... I can't even hear Close Encounters without hearing the little five note thing which is funny i'm gonna get to that music in a second okay <laughs> george lucas had to be like admitted to the hospital during the filming of star wars from like exhaustion and like hypertension and stress he was just so stressed out about budget constraints and and having like no special effects to show yet and all this stuff and it was uh, yeah it was a like a and you know no one knew what star wars was it was all a joke to everyone except for george lucas um, he was the only one that believed in it. And at that point, so much pressure. he'd wrapped filming and he, he, um, so this is what Spielberg said about it. He says, uh, George came back from Star Wars a nervous wreck. He didn't feel Star Wars lived up to the vision he'd originally had. He felt he'd just made this little kid's movie. And then this is where the dare comes. In this case, it's not as much of a dare as a bet, but I still feel like it's very similar to like the friendship and the rivalry and, um, sort of trying to one up each other in a way. Um, that we saw from Mary Shelley and and friends and Lord Byron and then also Lewis and Tolkien. So Lucas was so convinced that Close Encounters would be a bigger hit than his own Star Wars. He made a bet with Spielberg and Spielberg t- took the bet. So in Hollywood, there's this thing called like a, they're called points. So everyone gets points. Um, points stand for a percentage of the profits. So usually people that are higher up, like the directors and writers and producers, um, sometimes the higher build actors they get points, so they they get their salary, but then they also get a percentage of whatever <clears throat> a percentage of whatever the profits are in the movie. Okay. So they ended up. Um, do they still do it that way today? I think there's still points involved. I don't know. Interesting. But so they swapped these points, which amounted to two and a half percent of the profits. So whatever profits were made, Lucas would get two and a half percent of Close Encounters. 
Spielberg would get two and a half percent of Star Wars <laughs> because Lucas Lucas was sure that Close, Close Encounters was going to be a huge hit and make way more money than his silly little kids film that no one would ever watch. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but of course, that wasn't the case, right? Star Wars was a huge, gigantic hit. Close Encounters right. wasn't a dud, but obviously Spielberg no. made way more money off of that. So, right. And when you think about long term, too. Yeah. You want to guess how like much there's money? There's so many people who have never have never seen Close Encounters. Right. Everybody knows about right. Star Wars. <laughs> so you want to guess how much money Spielberg has made off of Star Wars? Like Spielberg had nothing to do with Star Wars other than just being George's pal, but like he didn't mm-hmm. have any involvement. So here's my question: Are points and profit like are they still going to to this day? Yes. So Spielberg is still so getting. So Spielberg will always make money off of Star Wars, even though he had nothing to do with Star Wars, <laughs> only because of a bet. Wait, 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 shouldn't he only be making the profits off of A New Hope? Yes. So it's just A New Hope. Okay. I think. That's how it works. That's got just be. a new hope, but um, but I mean that continues with right merch home video sales. And home, yeah, I don't know you... about merch. I think that's oh, okay. all in Lucas's that's pocket. But okay. well, not anymore because he doesn't own Lucasfilm. Right. But it was. So I'm not entirely entirely sure of all the particulars. Yeah, and now that Disney owns it, does Spielberg still get a cut? I have no idea how any of that works. All I know <laughs> is that I have a number that by 2014, Spielberg had made a certain amount of money off of Star Wars: A New Hope. So how much do you guess that Spielberg okay. has made? Spielberg has made $1.2 million. $40 million. No way. Yeah. So so Steven Spielberg has made $40 million. That's a, as of 2014. <laughs> so for a movie that he had money. nothing to do with other than making a bet <laughs> with Lucas because Lucas was sure that Star Wars would be a dud. I love that they actually stuck with it too. That, yeah, like, right? Lucas wasn't... I mean, from Lucas' side, you can't be like a... No, I don't want to do this. But from Spielberg's, right. wouldn't it be like a funny? As a friend, I'd be like, I can't, I can't keep taking this from you. Right. Like, <laughs> right? Like, stop, stop sending me these checks, please. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? So funny. Yeah. Okay, so how much did uh, how much is Lucas? I'm not sure how much. Off of closing th- those numbers aren't easier as easy to find. Mm, like because right. Spielberg made astronomically more than Lucas did on the bet that I, I've never been able to find the numbers of what Lucas made off of Close Encounters. Right. But I'm sure it's minuscule in comparison. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. I doubt it's even well, a isn't million. Anything minuscule right. compared to forty million dollars. <laughs> so before, so back up a, a tiny bit when because this is an important part of their friendship. So when Spielberg, sorry, when um, Lucas had a rough cut of Star Wars, so there was no special effects, maybe a couple of shots. There's like no awesome Ben Burt sound effects. There's no John Williams music. It's just, you know, a very rough cut. It'd be really hard to watch. It would, and, and it was. So Lucas screened it with, you know, some of his director friends, probably some of these movie brats, and they all kind of like scoffed at it and didn't like it, except for Spielberg. He was the only one, in the room that was like saw its potential understood what lucas was going for and what it could be um so yeah he's the only one that really loved it at that point which is i don't know i find it cute it's very cute (laughs) he's so encouraging Mm -hmm. look buddy look at what it all you've got good bones here look look at everything that it can become well and part of it i'm sure is because they were such close friends that spielberg knew on a deeper level what george was going for and knew what he hoped for it and what the plan was whereas some of those other friends might have been more, um, I mean, they were friends, but slightly more acquaintances. And so right. they weren't looking at any deep level. They were just giving some surface critique. But yeah, that's really cute. Oh, back to the music thing, because you mentioned that. Spielberg was really jealous about the music of Star Wars, because John Williams did the music for Close yeah. Encounters uh, and and Star Wars. And they're coming out at 
kind of similar points in time. You know, they're uh-huh. being made at the same time um, and they're competing studios. The studios were kind of competing with each other. And there was that friendly rivalry between Spielberg and Lucas. But Spielberg was kind of jealous because he had introduced John Williams to Lucas. And here is <laughs> here he feels like um, Lucas got the better end of the deal that John Williams, that Lucas got more out of John Williams for Star Wars than he was able to get out of Williams for Close Encounters. Obviously, there's the the famous five notes, but the rest of the score is not nearly as memorable iconic. or iconic as, I mean, it's freaking Star Wars. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Spielberg's gotten a lot of other good music out of John Williams. Right. Yeah. I mean, more in terms of of output. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's this awesome book that I really love. And it's like apparently really hard to find now. But um, how Star Wars conquered the universe. I don't know why you can't find it anywhere. It's not that old oh. of a book. No. because um, The book ends right at the Disney sale. So we hadn't had any sequel trilogy stuff, but it's still not that old. It's 2013 or 14. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, it's hard to find. But it's a really good book if you can, I don't know, find it at a library or something. Um, there's little nuggets of, of some of this stuff that I'm talking about with Spielberg and Lucas. I like that the book, um, it makes this connection between the fact that these are two men that invented the blockbuster and they also happen to be best friends. And I, I just love that. It's true. I hadn't thought about that. Because Jaws. Yeah, the, the big. It was that one-two punch of Jaws and Star Wars that defined and created the what the modern blockbuster is. And it's from two best friends. <laughs> Cute. Just pals changing the world together. <laughs> but that book also later, there's a quote I wanted to, to read. It says, a, a team uh, team up seemed inevitable. Lucas and Spielberg were cut from the same cloth both ruthless perfectionists who managed to stubbornly retain a childlike sense of wonder. Um, so as it mentions, there's this team up, inevitable team up. Star Wars had just come out. Lucas was really nervous. He thought it would be a dud, even though he had the finished product in his hands, but he didn't think it would amount to anything. So he ran away to Hawaii with his wife to sort of try to escape it. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but he brings Spielberg along. He invites Spielberg to come to to Hawaii. See, um, friendships. Yeah. As strong as marriage is. You're um, like, this is really important to me, honey. My friend's got to come too. <laughs> so we've got Spielberg and Lucas on the beach, literally mm-hmm. making sandcastles. Like they're making sandcastles while they talk about this, <laughs> which is adorable. And Spielberg was lamenting how he wanted to make a James Bond movie, but the studio for James Bond turned him down. They didn't want him to direct the next James Bond. Mm-hmm. So he was really upset, um, which as an aside is very interesting because... George Lucas, when he, you know, pre-Star Wars, he really wanted to make Flash Gordon. And um, the studio that owned Flash Gordon told him no. So if either of those studios had said yes, we wouldn't have Star Wars and we wouldn't have Indiana Jones because as Spielberg is sad about James Bond, uh, Lucas is like, well, I have a better idea. We, we need to make some like swashbuckling adventure type story with archaeologist, famous archaeologist, Indiana Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, he's not named Indiana Smith. But that was the initial Original idea. Premise. Yeah. Um, they changed it to Indiana Jones because that, I mean, that just sounds better. It does At least sound to better. our mind now. But so Indiana Jones came from sandcastles on the beach. In Hawaii. And, of course, so Spielberg directed Raiders of the Lost Ark and George Lucas helped with the story and then did the producing. And Spiel, uh, Lucas said that was the most fun he'd ever had on a set. Lucas kind of... Yeah, when you get to work with your best friend. We get to work with his best friend. But Lucas is very much an idea man and uh, putting pieces into place from afar. 
um, big ideas type of thing. Whereas, you know, he does not do well with the nitty gritty, with the directing actors and um, refining the, the, you know, finer points of the story and the Mm -hmm. script. That's not Lucas's strong point. Whereas that's totally Spielberg. Spielberg, yeah. So I think that's why they work so well together is because... They're not competing. They can take different roles. Exactly. They're they're collaborating in different ways. And it's... um, Yeah, exactly. Another cute story. So 1982, Spielberg is nominated for Best Director for Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think 1982. So so George would have been working on Return of the Jedi at the time. So he couldn't go. He couldn't make it to join him at the um, at the Academy Awards. Well, and Lucas, he wanted Spielberg to direct Return of the Jedi, but that didn't work out because the Directors Guild hated George Lucas, which is another story for another time. But (laughs) George Lucas basically wasn't allowed to use Spielberg anymore. But Spielberg is, you know, getting ready for the for the awards and he gets a telegram from George Lucas because this is, you know, 80s and the telegrams were telegrams were still a thing. Um, Not even a fax. Right. It's like a telegram. No, no faxes. No way. <laughs> this, and the telegram said, Dear Steve, from all of us archaeologists you left behind in London, good luck on Oscar night. I have a feeling you'll win. Remem- remember, be careful. Don't make a fool out of yourself. There will be 80 million people watching. Best wishes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so... Um, playful and like you know just kind of teasing like don't make a fool of yourself and i love that because lucas is not generally a playful person in public um he always seems so serious he is a very serious guy he's or you watch him in interviews and things mm -hmm. and he almost seems a little uh i don't know like one note like monotonous and a little monotonous like Um, and sometimes you read an initial like an initial reading of his person you're like how did he come up with star wars like it's such a wide very diverse colorful and you're like he doesn't seem like a very colorful person well i think he's just shy and introverted um but i love that absolutely spielberg brings out some playfulness in him like with the shark and Mm -hmm. and with the telegram and and they really are very similar like if anything lucas is an analog for tolkien and spielberg is an analog for for lewis Lewis. and not just in personality because it definitely is like the the shyness versus the um outgoing nature but even other things like you think about the breadth or depth of their creativity. So like Tolkien almost exclusively focused on Middle Earth stories, right? Yes. Much like Lucas almost exclusively focused on Star Wars. He mm-hmm. had a hard time getting out of that. He had little things here and there, but that was definitely the main thing. Um, whereas Spielberg had a huge breadth of different types of stories and still does. You know, he's creates movies that are vastly different from one another. And that's like, you know, Lewis, he, he wrote and spoke a lot about religion and and had narnia stories and he had a space trilogy and so i think that's just i don't know that's fascinating to me if they hadn't overlapped lives a little bit you could say that they were like reincarnations yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) the Um, dates don't quite work out for that theory but but i do like the idea casey if you had a best friend and you worked well together creatively in one life then in the next life you'd still like find each other and work together (laughs) creatively again like you just kind of like in the uh, article on friendship from the atlantic the idea that your soulmates comes up and some of when they're talking about some of the modern friendships um like people that they interview for the story and they talk about how it's like having a life partner that you just don't want to kiss. Like there's this, you know, they're like your one and only, your go-to, your, yeah. um, they're your soulmate. You're just not interested in them sexually, but like they are the most important relationship in your life. Love that. 
One final thought I had about um, Spielberg and Lucas is just how much they changed and shaped pop culture, like together and apart. Like we mentioned Indiana Jones and um, obviously their friendship was influential with each other in those early days, even if they weren't involved directly with each other's projects. Um, But then even just like on a technological level, like look at the amount of things that have come about just because of George Lucas, Um, like non-linear editing systems on computers. Pixar wouldn't be in existence or at least it wouldn't be the same without um, starting at Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. Um, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, has done obviously Star Wars, but countless other movies, including most of Spielberg. Um, Even like, so at the period of of Jurassic Park, right? ILM was starting to really get big into, they're, they're starting to create CGI stuff and figure out what they could do and experiment. There hadn't been anything like on a huge level um, in terms of, of CGI mixed with live action. And also at that point, when Jurassic Park came out, Lucas hadn't really been that involved in anything and hadn't directed for over a decade. Um, but then they were showing sort of early footage of the possibilities that they could do with the dinosaurs in CGI. And it brought everyone to tears, including George Lucas. And that inspired him to keep going, to decide to direct like the prequels later. Um, he wasn't really Very planning cool. to. And it was like a direct result of seeing what ILM did with those CGI dinosaurs for Jurassic Park that right. inspired him. So really cool. What would it be like to be making enough money off of your brain children? Mm-hmm. You know, ILM and, mm-hmm. and all these other things. You're making enough money off them that you can just kind of step back and like not work for a decade. <laughs> right. You're like, it's fine. Well, I needed producing stuff. <laughs> um, it wasn't like it didn't work and there was theme park stuff happening. And I mean, I think Lucas has always been working. But in terms of directly involved, being a right. director, he thought he was done directing and it inspired him to get back, get back on the, get back on the dinosaur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also Casey... You and I just need one thing that we can live off of the royalties forever on. Yeah. That's all, that's all we need in life. There you go. <laughs> but I don't think it would work. I think a lot of these creative friendships come about because... Because they're not married, is that what you're saying? No, because there's this like need to um, make a name for themselves or this this drive to, uh, you know, they have to find their own way or they're, you know, I think it gets a little harder once everything's easier in your life, if that makes sense. Mm. Like you don't have the same drive. Oh, for sure. To I think create that something new. restrictions are important. I think yes. A New Hope is a success because it was, had all he these had to, budget constraints and, and special effects constraints. And he had to push against a lot to yeah. get it made in the first and place. Pushing new technologies and all that, that resistance is what makes it powerful. So, mm-hmm. Well, should we close out the episode? If we must, we must. Do you have must. any media recommendations? I feel like we haven't been watching anything new. I know. We're still watching Blackish. I'm going to recommend music. Janelle Monet's The Electric Lady, which I'm just discovering Janelle Monet. I thought she was an actress. I didn't know she was a musician prior to that. And now I'm like, oh, she's got all this awesome science fiction influence. Like The Electric Lady is a concept album, you know, as an homage to Metropolis. So I'm in love. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. I haven't listened. I just started listening to a story today, an audiobook today called uh, The American Royals. So far, so good. I'm only a couple of hours in. But it's what the, if it stinks? At the I end? know. And then next time I'll just have to tell you, don't, don't <laughs> listen to The American Royals. Um, but it's the idea that if George Washington Casey hadn't turned down 
because like they offered like hey you want to be our pres- or our oh, king yeah. and if he'd have been like yeah sure i'll be king oh, nice. and so the idea that america would have had like a royal family and so this is the modern day royal family and it's really interesting to hear things like their personal guards are called like the revere guard because of paul revere and how he you know and so there's just really fun little tidbits throughout that come from the history and obviously because george washington is the king uh mount vernon is like where the castle is and there's like the little bit of his old house still there that's like attached to the castle but it's just gotten like bigger over the decades and so there's lots of fun little things like that and so far i'm very into it it's good that's fantastic yeah okay should we give our teased Yes, announcement. you've waited this long for the news. How to announce it, Casey? <laughs> Where's our drum roll? It's <laughs> a weird drum roll. That was uh, <laughs> something. Just do a close encounters. <laughs> do, 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 do. No, I'm off. What is it? about every time that happens? <laughs> I can't. Every I, time. I can hear it in my head, and then every time I try to sing. Boom, 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 boom. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not a very musical being. It's not my strength. But on those five notes, we wanted to announce to all of our, or we wanted to announce that all of our patrons will now be entered in a monthly giveaway. Yeah, something fun, something random, often related to something we've talked about. Yeah, something that we bring up on the podcast that we love, something that we've recommended. So it could be a movie, a book, a piece of merch, a action figure. Yeah. Anything. It'll change month, month to month and any of our patrons, and I mean, you only need $3 a month yeah, and you're a patron, yeah. and then you can be entered into a, our monthly giveaways. And if you win the monthly giveaway, but you're like, oh, that thing's not really for me, you can pass and get two entries the next month. So yeah, we have a system. We do. It's new and experimental, Yeah, but it is a system. We've also been doing monthly hangouts. It's not listed on the Patreon, but we just do a monthly Zoom hangout with all of our patrons, anyone that can come. And they are the best thing that's ever happened to the podcast. We laughed so hard on this past Friday night. We have so much fun. Um, It was a lot of blast. We have the best patrons. And And we handed out our first giveaway. Yes. Which I just want to, you know, if you get an idea, then yeah, we spun the wheel and we we gave away a a Blu-ray copy of The Galaxy Quest because we've talked about how much we love that movie on here to give you an idea of the kinds of gifts available. Exactly. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at elsewhere underscore pod. Our cover art is by Vaishan Brandon. You can find his graphics on Instagram at graphite.vmb. Hello from Elsewhere is a proud member of WBNE. Visit WBNE.org for more fabulous podcasts like Sincerely Us. Hi, I'm Eni. And I'm Becca. And we host the casual musical theater podcast, Sincerely Us. We break down all the themes, motifs, and plot lines of your favorite musicals while also having fun and sharing our love for the craft. We cover new shows, old shows, popular shows, and everything in between. Everything from Hamilton all the way back to She Loves Me and beyond. We keep things light, explain in detail, and try to make the topic of musical theater accessible to everyone. So whether you've been into theater your entire life or have just gotten into it after seeing Hamilton, this is the show for you. With new episodes every Wednesday on WBNE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And now on Spotify. Well, Valerie, this storm on Lake Geneva is not letting up. And people have been telling ghost stories all over the place. I know. Do you keep looking around? And it's terrifying. Is your blood curdling? I'm going to go try to sleep in the light of the gibbous moon. Yep. (laughs) As it streams into your bedroom. (laughs) Good luck. May you you have no waking visions. 
I appreciate that. It's like the equivalent of saying sweet dreams, right? <laughs> May you have no waking visions. May you have no waking visions of reanimated <laughs> monsters. Happy beeps. Happy beeps. <laughs> <laughs>